Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What up, y'all? Happy Thursday to you. Um, so I'm actually recording this on the day I'm releasing it. So we'll find out how this goes. Uh, you know, honestly, I just uh, did, just didn't do it. Mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. I think I got that right. I'm not going to lie. I love the Latin liturgy. I really do. But I don't go to it nearly enough. And every time I do, I'm just like clinging to the little page they give you to make sure you don't mess up the words. And I still mess them up probably. But anyway, welcome to Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krause. I'm the host here at St. Teresa Catholic Church and School. Uh, so coming at you today with a Bible study, uh, just a brief Bible study on the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. In particular, we're going to zoom in on Romans uh, 1, the beginning of it. And uh, we're not going to go through like the whole book of Romans. We might do that one day, like we did with First Second Thessalonians. But I kind of want to just give you an introduction into the book uh, of Romans, into the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, kind of give you some little bit of background, some theories behind it, and kind of look at the really just the opening seven verses, because we, I mean, it's it's fascinating, I think. I, I think Romans is one of those letters that is, I think, very intimidating for a lot of people. Um, it's the longest of St. Paul's letters. It's arguably the most theologically dense letter that St. Paul ever wrote, at least that, that we have on, that we still have in existence. Uh, and it's, it's a letter that a lot of Catholics know uh, that a lot of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters have this letter basically, basically memorized. Um, this is, this is a, where, you know, Luther and Calvin get a lot of their texts from, you know, like, like uh, Dr. Kincaid and I were talking about a couple weeks ago, uh, we shouldn't be, as Catholics, we really shouldn't be intimidated by St. Paul's letters. Uh, it, it, it does take some hard work. Uh, even St. Peter, in the letter of St. Peter, or in the first letter of St. Peter, he talks about how, you know, the writings of our brother Paul, uh, they, though they be difficult to understand, right? So even St. Peter acknowledging that uh, Paul's writing uh, is kind of hard to understand. And in certain ways, we can look at it as if you if you ever try to read like an academic work, um, whether doctorate work or just kind of more academic work of whatever subject, whether it be uh, theology, philosophy, medicine, whatever, just any kind of academic work, even in English, right? Even a native English speaker, when you read an academic work, sometimes you're like, dang, this is kind of hard to read. Like I had to, I have to reread that to kind of compute what I just read. Um, and even for native Greek readers and Greek speakers, um, St. Paul originally was pretty hard to understand because he, he was brilliant. I mean, he's really, he's the apostle. Um, and he's, he was uh, formed intellectually by Gamaliel, right, which is, was one of the leading rabbis of, the, of his day. And so it'd be like going to Harvard, right, and studying uh, law at Harvard and then, you know, writing to people who never studied law or very briefly studied law um, and he, you know, he does bring it down like quite a bit, but at the same time, he doesn't pull punches. Um, he says what needs to be said. And so, and letter of Romans is no different. Um, and so a few things uh, to keep in mind with a letter of Romans in general, because it's, I mean, it's really, really important with any letter of St. Paul, we, we really have to remember that at no point was St. Paul trying to write about every single theological subject under the sun. In any of his letters, that's that's not how he wrote. He wrote to specific people at specific times in specific circumstances. 
right? So he was writing to the Christian community in Rome, right? Or the Christian community in Corinth or the Christian community in Philippi, right? He was addressing very specific situations that he heard or he saw if he was there in person. And so the letter of Romans is no different. So I think a lot of times we try to just uh, play Bible bingo, Bible bingo with uh, St. Paul's letters and expect to just totally know what he's talking about. But it, that's just not the, the most prudent way to approach it. Don't get me wrong. Like, I think there are a lot of places in St. Paul's letters that you can kind of just read and not know any of the background and history and still pray with and still, you know, think through and still learn a lot from. But how much more could we understand if, if we kind of knew the background, backstory, and what problems that he was probably addressing? And don't get me wrong. You know, some of the problems that we think he's addressing is kind of just speculation, right? Because sometimes he doesn't say it directly. He just says, I heard from, you know, Silvanus, or I heard from, you know, one of his other uh, disciples that, you know, this happened or so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. Or like even in 1 Corinthians, he says, I heard that there is um, adultery among you, that uh, a, a man was uh, living with his husband or his father's wife, so namely his stepmom, um, and so Paul addressed that situation and he talked about it and that's what led him to talk about marriage and the beauty of marriage and what, you know, marriage should look like and all these things. And so for the letter of Romans, we have a interesting situation that we don't really have elsewhere in the Pauline corpus. And that is that Paul is introducing himself to this community via letter. Uh, he has not been to Rome yet. So unlike the other letters where Paul had previously visited the city or he had lived there for a certain amount of time here in Roman in Rome he, he had never been there right so he's he while he probably and he does know because at the end of the letter we know we, he knows people that are in Rome right he probably met them while he was traveling uh, or in Jerusalem even uh, he is ne- he himself has never been to Rome uh, that being said he still does address certain situations that he has heard um, and we find out through the letter that part of the reason he is writing to uh, the Romans is because he plans on going to Spain. And he, we know that he, he never made it to Spain. But he was uh, establishing a relationship with, these Christian, with this Christian community in Rome in order for him to use it as kind of a base of operations for him to one day go to Spain to... Uh, bring the gospel to everywhere, right? So for him, Spain was kind of the end of the world so far as going, you know, west. Um, and so he recognized that he had spread the gospel to Greece, to the islands, and to the Middle East. And, you know, he knows of apostles uh, that went uh, way east, right? Um, and so he wants to go way west. And so he needs a base of operations so that way when he sails, he has somewhere to stay you know, gather supplies, gather resources, and then make his big trip to Spain, right? So we know, we know that's, that's, that's part of the reason he's, he's writing uh, the, to the Romans. Um, but uh, it's not all of it. Uh, he also wants to teach. And so because he's introducing himself, Romans is a bit more of a full-body text. It's the longest, right? it's the longest letter. And it's, he does really cover you know, uh, a lot of issues. But one of the themes, you know, in Rome, in, in the letter of Romans is constantly going back to this Jew versus Gentile situation. Um, and this, this idea um, that there is Jewish Christians and then there are Gentile Christians. Um, and part of the reason for this might be 
because in AD 49, the emperor Claudius, uh, he actually banishes all Jews over the riots for, of Christos, right? Um, we know it'd be Christ. So um, we, and we know this historically, right? We know that uh, after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that there was rioting in Rome uh, over from the, from the Jewish community uh, because they heard about this Christos who apparently raised from the, was raised from the dead. Um, and so uh, after Claudius dies, however, the Jews were al- allowed back into Rome. But here's the deal. There was Gentile Christians at the point when the Jews were kicked out, right? So what happened? Well, presumably, when the Jews were banished from Rome, the Gentile Christians, who were, were not Jews, who were allowed to stay, they started cultivating uh, almost their own style of worship, right? What they, what they had learned from uh, the disciples and apostles that had taught them about Christ, you know, and so they were kind of cultivating their own kind of, you know, uh, sect of Christianity, if you will, right, that um, wasn't really influenced by the Jewish Christians. And so when the Jewish Christians were allowed back into Rome, they were confronted with these Gentile Christians who you know, were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols, who weren't uh, really practicing the Mosaic law because they didn't, they didn't know the Mosaic law, presumably. Um, and so there was this tension between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians in Rome uh, because it, it didn't really happen in other communities because in other communities that Paul formed, either they were basically just all Gentiles, right? So that conflict wasn't there. Um, or like in the Middle East, when there was a lot of Jewish converts to Christianity, um, there wasn't as big of, they were, they, they were never kicked out, right? So they kind of, their community grew organically. And there was still tension at times between Jews and, and uh, Gentile Christians. Uh, we, we see that elsewhere in Paul's letters, um, or, you know, what laws to obey, what, what foods to eat and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it happened kind of organically together with, rather than, you know, the Jews being totally just kicked out of Rome and then coming back. Um, so, so that happened in, you know, AD 49. Uh, Letter of Romans, scholars kind of guesstimate that it was written somewhere around 55 to 58 AD um, before Paul uh, was imprisoned in Rome, obviously, because he had not been to Rome yet. Uh, and so he's addressing this issue, right? Because presumably if the Jewish Christians were kicked out in 49 AD and then were let back in, you know, five years later, six years later, give or take, um, once Claudius died, that's when Paul then sees these problems arise or hears about the problems arising and then uh, writes a letter by way of introduction, but also to, to address these issues. And so the letter of Romans, we have kind of three different parts, and I apologize if you hear my Bible pages uh, flipping here, um, but I'm, I'm flipping. So we have the first major section, other apart from the intro, right? So it starts in really uh, verse you know, eight of chapter one. So one chapters one through eight is the first section here. Uh, and it's really, it can be arguably called the defense of grace, right? So the defense of grace. So St. Paul is going to spend a lot of time in chapters one through eight talking about this idea of grace and defending what, what, his, what is the true idea of grace. And then in chapters nine through 11, we have him kind of switching gears and talking about 
Israel specifically in God's plan. In chapters 9 through 11, he quotes more Old Testament passages than any other chapters that he writes anywhere, right? He, he, he quotes and references Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament. I mean, there's tons and tons of Old Testament quotes and references here. Um, and so we see then on, in 12, chapters 12 through 15, uh, switching gears again, and he talks about uh, we can, that, that section is really an exhortation to gospel living, right? That's when we switch to uh, how to live. If, if he's defended grace, he's talked about how, how Israel is involved in God's plan and how the Gentiles are then grafted into Israel uh, with the olive tree analogy. And then we, he talks about uh, the exhortation to, to gospel living. And then, uh, and then after that, we have the conclusion. So that's kind of just a rough idea of some uh, potential background. And I say potential background very, very intentionally because that's a, that's a working theory of why Paul wrote and also the situation, right? Uh, it's, I think it's a, it's a very plausible theory. I think it's a very good theory. It's an orthodox theory. Um, it, and so, but at the same time, it's, it's a thing, something is a theory if we can't prove it definitively, right? And now we do have historical on historical record that the Jews were kicked out after the rioting, um, but you know a lot of this is kind of uh, historians and, and theologians filling in the the blanks, right? So just keep that in mind, um, you know, when it comes to some of this uh, history behind uh, letters and and, uh, and a book or books of the Old Testament. You know, sometimes it's hard evidence that we have; other times it's it's you know, theories backed by pretty good evidence. Um, now, this is, I think, a theory backed by some hard evidence and some, and some pretty good evidence, so I think it works, but I'm not, I wouldn't die on a hill over it. Um, I wouldn't, you know, say there's no other plausible uh, option. There are other th theories out there. They're, they're good working theories, um, but I think that one's the best and most uh, makes the most sense to my brain. Um, so with all that being said, uh, we can zoom in now on, on cha chapter one, verses one through seven. So this is an introduction, um, and I think, and it's, and it's really, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful text. I think the most beautiful introduction, maybe other than Ephesians, I love Ephesians' um, introduction as well uh, for a lot of reasons. But I think this is just so theologically beautiful, but also just like so subtly like punch Caesar in the face um, and that it's just awesome. So anyway, uh, we're going we're gonna, gonna to briefly read uh, chapter one, verses one through seven. Uh, so we read, Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, cool. So just a beautiful, eloquent introduction. Um, and uh, there's what Paul's doing here. Is, is beautiful and it's subtle at the same time. That Paul is asserting divine authority over Caesar. Okay, and we'll see how we do that in a second. So uh, we'll start from the top. You know, we have 
Paul, a servant or a slave, it's the same word in Greek, of Christ Jesus, right? Paul, dolos. That can be our Greek word of the day, because I totally forgot to do it. Uh, Doulos, right? A servant or, or slave, same word, um, of Christ Jesus. And one thing that you might already know, but if you don't, you're about to learn, is, you know, when we say Jesus Christ, our Lord, or our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says, it says Christ Jesus here, um, Christ is not Jesus's last name. <laughs> um, that, that's not, Jesus Christ is not his like full name. It's not his last name. Yeshua, Jesus, right? Um, Yeshua uh, is, is, his, is his name, but Christ is his title, right? Christ is his title. So while Jesus was alive, the only person to call him the Christ was St. Peter, right? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Nobody called him. They called him Jesus, the son of Joseph, right? Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, right? So it's Yeshua bar Yosip, right? Jesus, son of Joseph. Uh, and so when the Christian communities and when Paul proclaimed Christ Jesus, Christos in the Greek, anointed, right? It's, it's just the translation. It's the Greek word for the Mashiach, right? The, the anointed in Hebrew. And so instantly, from the first, you know, four words, it says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Instantly, Paul is saying of the king, the anointed one, called to be an apostle or a royal messenger. So Paul, a servant of the king Jesus, called to be an apostle or royal messenger, it's another way you can translate that, set apart for the gospel of God. This is something else. So the word gospel, and we might have talked about this before in the podcast. I don't remember, so I'm going to talk about it again. Um, the word gospel, right, euangelion in Greek, that was not a word that was invented by the Christian community. It was not a word that was invented by Paul. Euangelion was, is translated good news, right, or gospel, the word gospel in English comes from the old English good spiel, right? So good spiel is the word that we get the word gospel from. Good spiel, good news, right? I think it's a German English kind of butchery of something. Anyway, so good spiel. So it's the good spiel of Jesus Christ. So it's the gospel, the good news, euangelion of Jesus Christ. And so this is a word that the Roman citizens would have been extremely familiar with when Caesar would conquer a territory or conquer a land or reconquer or beat somebody, the army would then process in, or a messenger would process in and announce the euangelion of Caesar. The good news of Caesar is that he won. Nike, victory, right? Uh, so the euangelion of Caesar is that he would conquer uh, the Gauls or conquer whatever. Um, and so this is a word that was very familiar with them. Yet Paul says, I'm about to tell you, I'm set apart for the euangelion theu, the, good, the gospel, the good spiel, the good news of God. So instantly from line one, Paul is saying, I'm here to tell you about the true king whose good news is of God, right? So that's, that's the climate that we're in. So instantly, 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 the Romans are 
switching gears from Caesar to Jesus, right? So we continue. Which he promised beforehand through his holy prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. So pausing right there. So why do we know that Jesus is the Christ and that he is truly uh, the son of God? Well, it's backed up by the prophets and the holy scriptures. So we have to define authority here. But check this out, right? When, you, when we see the word concerning his son, the son of God, that's another punch right to Caesar's face. Why? Because Caesar called himself the son of God. We have to remember that in Rome, there was emperor worship. And we talked about this in our introduction to the first Thessalonians. Uh, there's emperor worship, right? So what happened was when, the C- when Caesar died, he became, he became a god, right? So if you were the son of Caesar, you were the son of a god, right? So you were the son of God. So Caesars would call themselves sons of God, the son of a god, right? Paul, once again, saying the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his holy prophets and scriptures concerning his son, so not the son of, of some Caesar who thinks he's going to be God after he dies. No, no, no. The true God of Israel, because that's the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus Christ, who is truly the son of God. And here we go. Who is descended from David. Who is David? The, the most ideal king for Israel. Right? The, the king who didn't die in shame like Solomon did. While the, while the Israelite empire was the biggest under Solomon and the temple was built under Solomon, Solomon fell at the end of his life, right? But David, he fell early on in his reign, but repented. And so he's the ideal king for Israel. And Jesus, the Christ, the king, is a descendant of the true king of Israel. So not only is he the son of God, which makes him king, he's also the descendant from David's line which means he is the king of Israel, not Caesar, once again, according to the flesh. Verse 4, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Once again, kurios, the Greek word kurios, Lord, right? Lord, he's king. And so here's his proof. Here's St. Paul's proof. Because Caesar called, he said he was going to be a God when he died, and they called Caesar God when he died. So the Son of God, therefore, was divine, and they worshiped him. But once Caesar died, he has no authority. The next Caesar rules, right? But the proof for Paul that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the son, the true Son of God, that Jesus is king, truly king of the world, not just Israel, because he's the Son of God, is because, what does it say? By his resurrection from the dead. So the proof's in the pudding, right? Jesus proved his kingship. Jesus proved his authority by resurrecting himself from the dead. Caesars never did that. The Caesar says, oh yeah, when I die, I'm going to become God. Cool, cool, cool. And then they died, and then the Roman citizens would be like, okay, I guess he's a god now. I mean, there's no way of proving this, but... He said so, so it must be, must be the case. No, Jesus says, I am the king. I am the son of God. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be resurrected from the dead to prove definitively my defeat of Satan, of death, and of this world, and my reconquering of this world, because I am God. 
truly the son of God. And that's what he does. St. Paul goes on, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So what's the order here? It's grace. So he's received grace, and then grace leads to apostleship. And then apostleship leads to obedience of faith. Right? And that's something I want to end with, is this idea of faith, this word faith, pistis in Greek. You get all kinds of Greek words today. Watch out. And so this word pistis in Greek, um, a lot of the times I think when, when we talk about faith, especially when non-Catholics talk about faith, they, they leave faith as an intellectual assent to something unseen when we get that from the Hebrews. And, and there's, there's truth to that, right? There, so that's content belief. People believe. So if, if my wife uh, tells me that she saw a car accident today, uh, obviously there's no way for me to see that, uh, to know that. But I, I have faith that she is telling the truth, right? So that's, that's content faith. That's content belief. But there, faith is more dynamic than that. Right, so pistis in Greek, and even the word faith in English, it's not just content belief, right? So it's not simply a belief that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is God. That's part of the equation. That's a big part of the equation. But St. Paul uses the word uh, obedience of faith, right? So another element of faith is trust, right? It's trust. It's, it's I have faith in you. I trust you, right? It's, 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 that's an equivocal term. Do a lot of great, a lot of ways. I have faith in your word. I trust in your word, right? So we have faith in God and we have faith in Jesus Christ. One, when we intellectually believe that he rose from the dead, right? And that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's content belief. We also, I have faith in God that God is good. I have faith that God will never lead me astray. I have faith that he provides for what I need. I have faith that you know, he's going to give me the grace I need to do his will. So that's that trust. That's that element of faith. And a, a third part of faith is, is fidelity, right? Fides in Latin, f- fidelity. Um, and that's the obedience of faith. That's being faithful, right? I'm faithful to the commandments of Christ. I, it means I obey them. I obey Jesus Christ and his commands. Jesus talks about in, in John uh, like 15, 16, 17, um, Pretty sure it's 15, 16. Anyway, look it up. You should have a Bible handy. Anyway, but Jesus talks about uh, you, 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 you love me if you obey my commands, right? Um, and so that's being faithful, right? So I have faith in God. My faith in God is not merely intellectual assent, even though that's part of it. It's also having trust in God, having faith in God, but also being faithful to God, being obedient to him. Right? It's not merely an intellectual sense of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's not merely an intellectual sense that God exists. It's in my life, I am a faithful Catholic Christian because I've received grace and therefore apostleship and to, to bring about the obedience of faith. Right? So the apostleship was from as a response to grace, right? Because after receiving grace, St. Paul was sent on mission, like we all are. Right? So make sure you're going on mission. You have You've been received, you've received grace. You've been, if you've been baptized and you've been confirmed, you've received apostleship. Therefore, in responding to this faith that you proclaim to have in Christ, you should be obedient and therefore going out and proclaiming the euangelion theu, the good news of God, the good spiel of God. 
of Jesus Christ, who was truly raised from the dead, who is the true king, not Caesar. And so this is how St. Paul talks, uh, begins the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Um, I encourage you, Scott Hahn has a great commentary on uh, the letter of Romans. Uh, we did something on Romans 12, I think, uh, you know, a couple months ago. And so I think I probably mentioned it there. But anyway, he's a beautiful commentary on the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Very easy to read. Uh, Scott Hahn, my boy. Um, and I say that like I know him. I've literally never met him. Anyway, um, well, that's a lie. I briefly met him one time. Anyway, hashtag fangirl. Uh, so anyway, I hope this helped out. Uh, I hope this has inspired you to study Romans a little bit more in-depthly and to reminding yourself that Jesus is truly king. He's truly the son of God, and he deserves our faithful, obedient love for all eternity. And that's all I got for you guys this week. I'll see you next time on Catholics with Bibles. All right, y'all. Thanks for joining and partying with us on Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krause. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, talk about us with your friends and family and your spouses and your children. Helps us get the word out. Helps people find us on the Instagram and the uh, everything else just easier when we have reviews and stuff. So thank you so much. And I'll see you next time. God bless.